Thank you for reading. It's good to be back here again this afternoon to spend this time uh, further in God's Word as we work through these great truths summarised for us in the Apostles' Creed. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, Scott's encouraged me to let you know about a, a little book that the Bible Society have just published just this week. It's called Jesus All About Life. This is the second edition of a little book that I wrote back in 2009 uh, as part of the Jesus All About Life campaign that the Bible Society ran across the state way back then. They approached me about a year ago and said, would you do a second edition for us? And we went through it and refreshed the illustrations and got everything up to date. I got my teenage kids to read it uh, because it's designed especially for high schoolers and young adults as a short uh, introduction to Jesus. It takes you through uh, the basics of a Christian worldview from creation to sin uh, to our redemption in Christ to new creation, all from Jesus' words in the Gospels. Uh, and it's a way, therefore, of introducing a biblical worldview uh, based on the teaching of Jesus and focused on what God has done for us in him. Along the way, I try and answer um, some of the big questions that people ask. Why does a good God allow suffering in the world? Uh, how do we put together God and science? Um, can we trust what the Gospels say about Jesus? So I've got a few samples here. I've got a whole box that the Bible Society gave to me, so I'm happy to give them away. Uh, I've brought about 10 up. So first in, best dressed, uh, they're yours. Uh, and, and if you find it useful and you can think of other people, this is what I'm especially keen about, if you can think of other people who don't yet know the Lord, perhaps particularly young adults or teenagers, uh, I think it could work for other people as well, uh, then you can order a box from the Bible Society. Uh, they're selling them dirt cheap and, and give them away. So that's Jesus all about life. Okay, we looked this morning uh, at the Lord Almighty, the sovereign God, uh, in an anxious world, uh, and then maker of heaven and earth, the creator God in a materialistic world. And this afternoon we turn to God in the flesh, the present God in a lonely world. We're going to be focused in those two passages. I hope you're getting the hang of it. Isaiah chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 1. Though we'll also be having a look at a few other places uh, in the scripture as well because uh, this is not so much an expository series working through one particular part of the Bible but a doctrine series where we're trying to pull together everything the Bible says. Uh, but I'm focusing it in these couple of passages so that we've got somewhere, some, some hooks uh, to hang these great truths about God on. So I hope you've got Isaiah 9 and Matthew chapter 1 open. Uh, those will be the main places where we'll be working this afternoon. Let me pray as we come to God's word together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're not distant or remote, but that in your Son, our Lord Jesus, you came among us for our salvation. And we pray this afternoon as we reflect on this great mystery of the Incarnation, that you, our God, in the person of your Son, would take our human flesh to be with us. We pray that you would give us greater understanding of what you reveal to us in your word and deep comfort in knowing that we are not alone. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it was a busy Sunday at church. Uh, the church we were part of back then uh, had two levels, the main church building where there was the, the gathering, meeting, worship space and a, uh, a lobby, uh, and then an elevator, and then underneath a big car park. We're a young family, three kids at that stage. Jemima, our youngest, was three. It was a busy Sunday morning at church. Did I mention that? We were talking to lots of people. 
And as we got out of the elevator and walked to the car with two kids in tow, I looked at my wife and said, have you got Jemima? She said, no, I thought you had Jemima. I raced back to the elevator and pressed the button hurriedly and the elevator doors opened and there's a crying three-year-old <laughs> looking up at me. It's not nice to be forgotten, is it? Maybe been overlooked for the cricket team, not even considered for a new project or venture at work. Maybe sometimes you've felt forgotten by family and friends on a birthday or a special occasion. Maybe you don't feel like you receive the love and the attention that you feel you need from your spouse. Perhaps you feel lonely and forgotten much more than you'd like. Maybe sometimes you even feel that God has forgotten you. Like God is just not there for you. And you read through the Bible and you read the stories of God's powerful presence with Moses appearing to him in the burning bush and with Elijah speaking to him in that still, small voice on the mountain, of how he came with tongues of fire on the apostles on the day of Pentecost, and they spoke with power and boldness because God was with them. And you read God's promises of how he'll come and be with us in the end when he makes all things new, but right now, in the present, maybe you feel like God is absent or distant I think we feel particularly like this if we're struggling with a besetting sin that we just can't shake or when we're oppressed by an illness that won't go away or when we've been hurt by a broken relationship or we're praying for a sister or a brother for their salvation and there doesn't seem to be any progress. And we begin to feel like that great theologian Bette Mittler put it, that God is watching us. God is watching us. You know the song? God is watching us from a distance. I had some friends who really struggled with this a few years back. He was a school teacher. She was a stay-at-home mum. They had three kids. And at the 19-week ultrasound for their fourth child, the doctors said there's a really serious problem with her heart. The baby barely survived. She had open-heart surgery in the first week of her life. She was in and out of hospital for years. She's now eight years old and doing well but she's still only got 80% of the oxygen levels in her blood that she should have. And they keep saying they're not sure how long her heart will hold out. When we face situations like that, we, we can't help but asking, can we? Has God forgotten us? Where is God in this? Is he watching us from a distance? Has he left us in the elevator? Well, the good news that God has for us in this passage, especially in Matthew chapter 1, is that God has not forgotten us because in Jesus he's come to us. He's with us for our salvation. And so we've got three points. You'll see them there on the outline. God is with us. Uh, there should have been an italicization on the God in that first one to distinguish it from the second heading, which is God is with us, which would have been italicized, and three, for our salvation. So first, God is with us. Certainly if we feel like God has forgotten us, we're not alone. The Jews at the time of Jesus felt like God had forgotten them, abandoned them. They had the promises to Abraham and to David and then they found themselves in exile. And even though they'd returned from the Babylonian exile and they'd come back into the promised land, they were under the oppression of the Romans 
and it felt like God was absent. And that's why this story of Jesus' birth in Matthew is so brilliant because it speaks both to the Jews of Jesus' day and also to us as it tells us that God has not abandoned his people. Far from it. He's come among us to save us. It begins with Jesus' origins, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The child's origins are, in one sense, in the line of Abraham and David going down to Joseph. That's what the genealogy in the first part of Matthew chapter 1 shows us, if you cast your eye back a little bit there, we find the family tree of Jesus, Abraham and David, down to Joseph. But that's where it breaks down, because in verse 18 we read that before they came together, she, Mary, was found to be with child. This is life-shattering news for Joseph. His betrothed, Mary, is pregnant before they've come together. It's a scandal. And Joseph, being righteous, intends to divorce her, that is, break off the betrothal, but to do it quietly, discreetly, until he receives the even more astounding news. As the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream, in verse 20, he says, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is not a scandal, it's a miracle. This child is from the Holy Spirit. Now, there's no hint here of some crass idea like you get in the Greco-Roman myths of the gods. That's one of the gods has somehow had sexual intercourse with Mary and impregnated her. No, it, it's not like that. The angel announces that God is remarkably, miraculously at work here by his Holy Spirit. The birth of Jesus is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who hovered over the waters at the very beginning through whom God brought the universe into existence. That same spirit is now at work again to bring about a kind of new creation. And so, yes, this child's origins are in one sense in the line of Abraham and David to Joseph. And yes, in another sense, they're in Mary. But ultimately, this child's origins are in God. He is somehow the son of God. And this was all part of God's plan. We read in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Moses, he quotes out of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where Isaiah is told that the virgin will conceive and have a son and the child will be a sign, a symbol of God's presence with his people. And sure enough, if you keep reading in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, you find out that not much later, Isaiah himself has a son. And the child is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, because he's a sign that God is coming to his people. But this same son also has another name. See if you can wrap your lips around this one. It's Maher Shalal Hashbaz. You've got to pity his parents, not his parents so much as his school teachers when they were calling the role at school. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, quick to the spoil. What a name. <laughs> quick to the plunder, quick to the spoil. Why? Because this child will be a sign that God is with us in judgment. 
on his people. His birth will be a sign, God says, that God is about to send the Assyrian army to destroy, to bring judgment on his people. But as we keep reading in Isaiah, we find out that there's also more because following the birth of Meheshelah Hashbaz, God gives Isaiah a prophecy of another child. We read it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This other child will also be a sign for God's people that God is with us. Another Emmanuel. But there's a crucial difference. This second child will be a sign that God is with his people not to judge them but to save them. Not to condemn them but to give them life. And if you keep reading in Isaiah's prophecy, you'll find that there's no record of that second child ever being born. In fact, you can read through the whole of Isaiah and the whole of the rest of the Old Testament and you won't find this child who is a sign that God is with his people to save them until you turn over the page into the New Testament and you open up the Gospel of Matthew and you find Matthew explaining that Isaiah's prophecy of a young woman, a virgin, falling pregnant and giving birth to a son was about to have a second fulfilment, a greater fulfilment. In another Emmanuel, another child who will be a sign that God is with his people, this time not for judgment but for salvation. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But who is this child? The first Emmanuel, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, despite his remarkable name, was just an ordinary child. He was a sign that God was with his people, but there's no hint in Isaiah that that child was God himself in the flesh. But if we keep reading Matthew, you find that the child who's born to Mary is in another league altogether. He is God with us in some bigger, some deeper sense. When we get to Matthew chapters 5 to 7, we find that he interprets God's law on his own authority. You have heard that it was said, he says, do not murder. Who said that again? That was the voice of the Lord himself from Mount Sinai. You've heard that it was said that God said, but I say to you, says Jesus. Who does he think he is? He calls 12 disciples, symbolising the 12 tribes of Israel. And as you remember, the 12 tribes of Israel were gathered around Mount Sinai because God came down to dwell on the mountain and the 12 tribes were gathered around them. And Jesus calls not 11 disciples, so that he's the 12th making up the people of Israel, but 12 and puts himself in the middle. Who does he think he is? He heals the sick, he raises the dead, he casts out demons, he announces the forgiveness of sins on his own authority, apart from the sacrificial system at the temple that God had instituted for the forgiveness of sins. And way up in Galilee, he declares to the paralytic, I say to to you, your sins are forgiven. He walks on the water in Matthew 14. He calms the storm. He speaks of knowing God as his Father in a unique way. No one knows the Father except the Son, he says, Matthew 11, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
And all of that comes together after his resurrection and this astounding claim, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who does he think he is? And then he commands them to go into all the nations and make disciples, baptising them in the name, one name, of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Three names. And there he is writing himself into the name of God. You see, in Matthew chapter 1, in, in the birth narrative, there are hints of who this child is. Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit. And so we start to ask the question, who is this child? And by the time we get to the end of the gospel, there's no other conclusion, is there? Except that this child is God with us in the fullest possible sense. He doesn't merely symbolise God's presence. He's not merely a sign that God is with us. He is God with us. We've got to think about this carefully because it's not that God the Father took human flesh to be with us. It's not that God the Spirit took human flesh to be with us. It's God the Son who took human flesh and came among us. And it's also not that God the Son stopped being God and turned into a human. That's not what's happening at the Incarnation. No, while remaining fully God, he took to himself a real body and a rational soul, a full human nature, in what is the mystery of the Incarnation. He remained fully God while taking humanity, a human nature, to himself. He became a helpless baby in nappies. He humbled himself to learn how to speak, to obey his parents. He allowed himself to become subject to suffering and sickness and he ended his life strung up on a Roman cross and all the while, at the same time, through his human nature, he was sustaining the universe. It's unfathomable, isn't it? And yet that's what God reveals to us here in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the mystery of the incarnation. The child born to Mary is God with us and that means God is really with us and so we're at my second point God with us one of the heresies of the early church was called docetism it was the teaching that so emphasized or wrongly emphasized Jesus divinity that it minimized his humanity that's from a Greek verb dokeo I seem he only seemed human is what this heresy docetism taught. He wasn't really human. He was God with us, but he, he only came down to earth and floated about two centimetres above the ground. He, he never really touched the earth. He seemed human, but he wasn't fully human. And sometimes I wonder if that kind of idea seeps its way back into the way that we think and talk about Jesus when we don't reckon with the fact that he is God really with us. Because the biblical truth is that while being fully God, he was also fully human in every way and yet without sin. He had human genetics. Can we say that? Yes, we have to say that. Mary was his mother. Verse 20 in chapter 1, the child was conceived in her. He received from Mary what every other human child receives from their mother. He had Mary's DNA. He had a human birth with all the mess and the pain involved in that. 
He had a human development. We read in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that he increased in wisdom and in stature. He grew in favour with God and with men. One of the great joys of being a parent, isn't it, or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, is, is watching the kids grow, or a youth leader. You watch the kids grow up. As a baby, they begin to smile, and then two years old, they, they start to speak, and you can communicate with them. Four or five, they start to write their letters, and they come home from kindergarten, they're reading books and reading street signs. Uh, and then you get to nine years old and they're preparing speeches to give at school. Uh, they're reading novels, they're scoring goals, they're playing the piano and, and you're watching this unfolding before your eyes. Uh, and Mary and Joseph, as long as he survived, we don't know exactly how long Joseph survived, but certainly Mary had all those joys with Jesus as she watched him increase in stature, as she watched him grow in favour with God and with men. Jesus was toilet trained. He had the pimples of puberty. He grew hair on his chest and became a man. He was fully human in every way as we are, yet without sin. But, but we can say more. He also therefore had human weaknesses, needs and limitations. Although according to his divine nature he filled the universe... According to his human nature, he couldn't be in more than one place at once. He was in Capernaum and therefore he wasn't in Nazareth. His knowledge was limited. When the woman touched him, he asked, who touched me? He confessed in Matthew 24 that he didn't know the day or the hour of his final return as the Son of Man. When he spoke of his mission, he almost always, have you noticed this? He almost always speaks about it in terms of biblical prophecy. He quotes scripture to explain his mission maybe that's partly because he's helping the jews to understand that the scriptures are being fulfilled and therefore us to understand that the scriptures are being filled but also partly because that's how he came to understand his mission as he read the scriptures and saw himself there in the pages of scripture in the desert he was hungry in the boat he was tired and slept exhausted from his work on the cross, his lips were parched with thirst. He had human emotions. When he saw the demon-possessed man in Capernaum, he burned with righteous anger. When he saw the crowd as sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, as we spoke about this morning. And so he also suffered human temptations and struggles. He wasn't tempted from within like we are because he was entirely sinless. There was no corruption in his heart. But he did face real temptation from without. You remember he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again in the garden he wrestled in prayer, not my will but yours be done. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 we read that he learned obedience to his heavenly father by what he suffered. The Bible doesn't give any room to that view that Jesus only seemed human, that he floated two centimetres above the ground. No, he was truly and fully human in every way, just as we are, except without sin. And I hope you can see what this means when you put together point one with point two. If you want to know if God has forgotten us, or if you want to know, put it the other way, if God is really with us, then you don't start with philosophical speculation. You've got to start with a story. 
with this story, with the story of Jesus. You've got to go to the Judean wilderness and watch a lonely man struggling with temptation. You've got to go to Galilee and watch a young Jewish prophet announcing the kingdom of God, then healing the sick and raising the dead and forgiving sins and teaching the kingdom of God. You've got to go to Jerusalem and to the upper room and watch that same Jewish prophet bending down like a slave and washing the disciples' feet and to Gethsemane and see the face of that same man anguished in prayer. If you want to know that God is truly with us, you've got to look for him in the life, in the face of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? He says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In Christ Jesus, in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. Have you lost a companion, a friend? God, in the person of his son, has been there. You remember how Jesus mourned the loss of his cousin John the Baptist. Are you sick and weak, debilitated? He's been there. He's with you. Are you tempted to sin? Jesus knows what that is like, perhaps more than us, since the one who resists the most feels temptation the most. He's been there. He's with us. Have you been betrayed by a friend? Well, Jesus can tell you what that's all about. Wrongly accused, facing death. He's been there. He's with you. You see, if we want to know that God is with us, above all, we have to go not just to the Judean wilderness or to Galilee or to the upper room or to Gethsemane. We've got to go above all to Golgotha, don't we? And watch the face of that same man, crowned with a crown of thorns, anguished and bloodied, and hear him cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's mystery in that moment, isn't there? Because it's the moment in which the Father turned his face away, in which Jesus, the Son of God, bore God's wrath against our sin. There's much more to say about that, and we're actually going to focus on that tomorrow morning when we talk about God at the cross. But I want you to notice for now, it's also the moment when God the Son, our Lord Jesus, voluntarily put himself in our place. God in our place fully identifying with us in our sin under the judgment of God, fully experiencing the God-forsakenness that we deserve. And so there's great paradox there, isn't there? That there at the cross, more than anywhere, we see that God has come to be with us. Are you struggling with a besetting sin? Are you facing a difficult illness? Have you been hurt by a broken relationship? Do you feel somehow that you're in the elevator? Then you've got to go to the cross. Are there people you know and love who feel abandoned by God? Then you've got to take them to the cross with you because it's there more than anywhere that we'll see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But there's more, of course, isn't there? The, the prophetic word... Uh, that came to Isaiah, said that he will be called Emmanuel. 
But just like the original Emmanuel, who went by the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, <laughs> this child also has another name. It's there in Matthew chapter 1, the passage we're working out of. Uh, he was Emmanuel, but we're also told, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is God with us. He's God with us. And he came amongst us for our salvation. Uh, that's our third and final point. His name says it all, Jesus. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. His name says it all. He will save his people from their sins, the angel says. At the Joseph's ears, in Mary's mind, certainly to many of the Jews who lived in Jesus' day, salvation meant political freedom. And so for many, violent revolution against the Romans. But the angel has something bigger and better in mind. He will save his people from their sins, the angel says. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is in the upper room at the Last Supper with his disciples, he explains the meaning of his death. It's a Passover meal, and the Jews are gathering all over the place, and the disciples are gathering with Jesus to remember and to celebrate how God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt how God had brought them with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm out from under the thumb of Pharaoh, the oppressor. And they've come to, to celebrate that great salvation that God won for them when the blood of the lamb was spread on the doorposts and on the lintels of their houses. And the angel of death passed over them and they were saved and brought into freedom. And so Jesus comes to this Passover meal and as they're celebrating the Passover, he takes the cup and he says, Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And you read that together with the angel's word in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus' word, this is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. And you understand the kind of salvation that he's come to bring. That at its heart the salvation he brings is a forgiveness of sins, a reconciliation with God the creator, a renewal of the relationship between God and those who trust in his son. He's going to save his people from their sins and he's going to do it by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. It will be a new exodus to bring about a new freedom, not from slavery under Pharaoh, but from slavery under sin through the forgiveness of sins. And again, we're going to talk more about that freedom of forgiveness more tomorrow morning when we come to God at the cross. But this afternoon I want you to notice that there's even more to the salvation that the angel announces in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He brings salvation in the sense of forgiveness of sins and also salvation in the sense of freedom from all the effects of sin. There are pictures of it all the way through the gospel if we just trace the language of salvation. The disciples are in the boat, Matthew chapter 8. They're overwhelmed. They're about to drown. And what does Jesus do? He saves them. That's the language. Uh, the, the woman who suffered for 12 years from a flow of blood comes to Jesus. She touches his cloak. And what does Jesus say to her? Your faith has saved you, healed you. 
because the salvation that he brings includes both of those elements. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that uh, the one who endures to the end will be saved from the final judgment. You see, the salvation that the angel announces, the salvation that Jesus brings in chapter 1, verse 21, has forgiveness of sins at its heart, but because it has forgiveness of sins at its heart, it also involves freedom, salvation, from all of the effects of sin, from suffering and from sickness and ultimately from death itself. That's the scope of the salvation that Jesus brings. Which means you need to look to Jesus for your salvation. Now you'll say, here I am at the church camp, I'm already saved, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, no, you need to look to Jesus for your salvation. If you're in Christ, if your faith is in him, your sin is forgiven. You're reconciled to your heavenly father. You can come into his presence without fear and without shame because of the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. More on that tomorrow. But are you still struggling with sin in your life? You need to look to Jesus for salvation. Are you facing an illness that just won't go away? You need to look to Jesus for salvation. Have you been hurt by a broken relationship? You need to look to Jesus for salvation. You see, Jesus' atoning work of reconciling us to the Father is complete. It is finished, he said, on the cross. But Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father, applying that salvation, working out that salvation amongst the lives of his people in the world. And so that's why in the Bible we read that salvation is past and present and ultimately future. We have been saved and we are being saved and we will be saved when Jesus comes again. And here's the good news of the angel's announcement in Matthew chapter 1. God is with us in Jesus to bring the fullness of that salvation from our sins and all of their effects. And so, as we've trusted him for our forgiveness, as we've trusted him for reconciliation with the Father, we need to keep trusting him that he might bring us through to the fullness of that salvation in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes again. And in fact, Matthew's gospel is full of Jesus' promise that he will be with us as he works out the fullness of that salvation. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus anticipates that there'll be a struggle with sin in the church. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, difficulty in the... No, this is the perfect church, of course. There's, there's none of that here. <laughs> Jesus anticipates there'll be struggles with sin in the church. And he provides instructions about how to deal with it. And then he makes a promise. Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask... It will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, what does he say? There I am, yeah, in the midst of you. He's with us among his people as we struggle with sin, as we look to him to bring about the fullness of the salvation that he promises. In Matthew 28, after his resurrection, he commands them to go into all the world to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He gives, 
his people a command to mission and discipleship to all the nations, to call people everywhere to become his disciples, to baptise them and to teach them, to observe all that he's commanded them, to learn to live God's way in all the nitty-gritty details of life, to trust him all the way to the end. And so he promises, as he works out that global salvation, exactly the same promise. Surely I am with you always, he says, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, to the very end of the age. You see, God is with us. God is with us in Jesus for our salvation. That's not just something in the past, that's something that he continues to promise for the present and the future, that he will be with us by his spirit, working out our salvation until he comes again. I sat and prayed with my friends at the Royal Hospital for Women as their baby daughter had heart surgery. It was devastating. There were tears streaming down their cheeks. Kath said, the doctor told us there's a good chance she won't make it. She said, we prepared ourselves for the worst. But she also said, but I know he's with us. <laughs> I know he's with us. She was right. He is with us all the days, he says, until the very end of the age. He never promises to make our lives easy, does he? He doesn't promise to take away the struggles. He's been there himself. He knows what it's like. But he does promise that he's with us by his spirit even in the worst of times, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And he does promise us that he will be with us until the day when he comes again in glory, when every eye will see him, when he'll gather all of his people into his presence and wipe away every tear from their eyes. To that day when he'll be with us fully and finally and forever, when he'll complete the work of salvation that he's begun. How about we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that in your Son, our Lord Jesus, uh, you've come amongst us. That you're not watching us from a distance, but that in him, in his life, his death, his resurrection, you have experienced the full range of human experience. That he was fully human in every way, yet without sin. And we thank you most of all that through that life, that death, that resurrection, you have been with us to bring about our salvation. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to look to you as you apply that salvation more and more fully in our lives. Help us to look to you until Jesus comes again and we see him face to face. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.